Okay, guys, let's uh, find our way to Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 1. And uh, we've kind of got into the text a little bit. We've talked about it, some background. Uh, If you missed that, you might want to go back and pull the audio down from uh, the website and uh, listen to that. So Lamentations, just very, very briefly, Lamentations is a short book, uh, five chapters written by the prophet Jeremiah, who was called by God to minister for over 40 years to the southern kingdom of Israel called Judah in the wake of their their sin, their idolatry, their rejection of God, their turning away from the law and instructions of God, their going after the gods and religions of the surrounding nations. And as you know, the prophets uh, largely had a very, very depressing ministry because God told them uh, ahead of time that very few people are going to respond to your message. And so not only did Jeremiah have to deliver a message that largely landed on deaf ears for over four decades, the conclusion, the pinnacle of his ministry, his prophetic retirement was watching the Babylonians come in and over a series of years in three major military campaigns, uh, penetrating the walls, destroying the city, and finally setting the place on fire, uh, killing thousands of Israelites and taking thousands, others, uh, thousands of others back to Babylon to be enslaved in that great nation. And so what is Lamentations? As the name implies, the book of Lamentations is a funeral sermon for the city of Jerusalem. And it reflects, you know, and in saying Jerusalem, obviously we're not ultimately just sad about the destruction of the temple and the walls and the city. It's what all of that reflects. That temple reminded the people that God is always with them and that He is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. And to see it destroyed is a particularly graphic way to communicate to the Israelites what you've done is a big deal. Uh, and that, maybe that's a good just kind of introduction as we jump in here. Um, idolatry is serious. And you don't have to have a Buddha in your bathroom. You don't have to have a Hindu pantheon on your patio to be guilty of idolatry. Idolatry, remember guys, in the Bible is just any time something replaces God in our life. That's all it is. Anytime something comes, a person, an item, a pursuit, that replaces our love for God, our allegiance to Him, our trust in Him, our loyalty, when we begin to listen to something else as the governing compass of life. And as we read this, and as you say, man, I'm sure glad I wasn't there in the 6th century B.C. to be a part of that, part of the reason it's in our Bibles is this reminds us just how serious idolatry is. And the fact that God hasn't blown up our city or our church or, or whatever is only a reflection of His kind mercy and grace. It's not to diminish in any way our own struggles with idolatry. Okay, so that's a really, it's a sobering message, but we need that. It's so easy to just drift to where we look up one day and it's like Christ is not really Lord over over everything in life like He's supposed to be. So so we're going to come back to Lamentations, uh, to this uh, funeral sermon for Jerusalem. We're going to... I'm just going to read the first chapter. And uh, the English is not going to do justice to the Hebrew poetry. The the Hebrew poetry is beautiful. There's no way to really 
I mean, go learn Hebrew and read it. I guess you could do that, but that'll take a while. But I'm going to try to do justice to uh, what's said here, okay? But I just all we're going to do today is we're going to listen to the chapter, and then we're going to talk about it. And I've got an outline. You notice it's a, a bit of a shorter outline. Um, it, you know, it's like you know if if uh, you know Boyd Alcorn and and Roger Rexdiner and Joan Slaughter and I all go to a funeral for a friend, and someone said, "Hey, how was the funeral?" You know, chances are I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hand them a, a five point outline. Oh, you know, here's what we did, right? Because it's just it's a funeral. It doesn't lend itself to a neat and tidy sort of analytical outline. So what I've given you there is reflective of that. It, it's not Pastor Keith's typical step by step because the genre is so different. The type of literature is so different. All I'm doing in the outline is giving you some themes to notice. But before we get there, we're going to be kind of very interactive about this. So as I read. Uh, it's a little bit longer. Stay tuned in. Follow along because I'm going to ask you about what you notice. Okay. What we're going to do today is we're going to try to answer the question. <laughs> there's the clicker. What does lament sound like? That's what we're going to do. Okay. So I'm going to read. You're going to pay attention. We're going to talk about it, and then we'll we'll fill the outline in at the end and uh, go from there. Okay. Chapter one, verse one. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. She has become like a widow who was once great amongst the nation. Now remember, what poetry does is it personifies, right? So we're thinking about the nation, we're thinking about the city, and Jeremiah is going to use the female pronoun she to describe that, okay? So when you hear she, you're like, you know, who's that? Is that Sally? Is that Mary? No, no, no. It's the city. It's the people. It's the nation, okay? Back to verse 2. She weeps bitterly in the night. And her tears are on her cheeks. She has none to comfort her among all her lovers. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. Now remember, what Jeremiah is talking about is the Israelites have looked to other nations and other gods especially as their protections. And Jeremiah is saying here, it's like, it's like a, a man who leaves his marriage and goes and commits adultery with multiple lovers. It's, it's, a, it's a breach of loyalty and faithfulness is what Jeremiah is using that analogy here. And he's saying, all those false gods, all those nations, where are they now? They're gone. They've abandoned you. There's no one there to help. Verse 2, all her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile under affliction and under harsh servitude. She dwells among the nations, but she has found no rest. All her pursuers, talking about Babylon, have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads of Zion are in mourning. Remember how the Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent talk about how uh, the people would gather on the holidays and, and these roads leading to Jerusalem, that's another name for Zion, were packed with people coming into the city. Right? And everybody's excited. It's a holiday. It's a festival. And Jeremiah says those roads, what? Are in mourning. Because no one comes to the appointed feast, right? No one's coming to the holidays. There, there's no city anymore. The people are dead or scattered. Verse 4 All her gates are desolate. Her priests are groaning. Her virgins are afflicted. And she herself is bitter. Her adversaries have become her masters. Talking about the Babylonians and enslavement to them. Her enemies prosper. For the Lord has caused her grief. Because of the multitude of her transgressions. Listen to this. Even her little ones have gone away 
as captives before the adversary. Can you imagine as a mom or a dad or a, a, a grandma or a grandpa watching your toddlers carried away in slavery? Watching your young son or daughter in chains taken away by foreign soldiers? As a parent, that just, that just rips the heart out of you. Jeremiah says, that's what's going on. Verse 6, All her majesty has departed from the daughter of Zion. Her princes have become like a deer that have found no pasture. Right? They're, they're, they're running around about. They can't find a place of nourishment or rest. Why is that? Because there's no food in the city. The water supplies have been cut off. There's no nourishment. It's like a deer running around and running around and running around with no pasture, no place to eat, no place to drink. They have fled without strength before the pursuer. Verse 7, In the days of her affliction and homelessness, Jerusalem remembers all her precious things that were from days of old when her people fell into the hand of the adversary and no one helped her. You can see Jeremiah saying, We remember back to those days that we flourished and Jerusalem was this beautiful place of, of, of feasting and and praise of God and, and commerce and, and all that's gone. All that's changed. They fell into the hand of their adversary. Their adversaries saw her, end of verse 7. They mocked at her ruin. Verse 8, Jerusalem sinned greatly. Therefore she has become an unclean thing. All who honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness, meaning the, the sin and destruction. Uh, even she herself groans and turns away. Her uncleanness was under her skirts and she did not consider her future. Therefore she has fallen astonishingly and she has no comforter. See, O Lord, my affliction, for the enemy has magnified himself. The adversary, verse 10, has stretched out his hand over all her precious things. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, the ones whom you commanded, that they should not enter into your congregation. All her people groan, seeking bread. They have given her precious things for food to restore their lives themselves. See, O Lord, and look, for I am despised. Is it nothing? To all you who pass this way, look and see if there is any pain like my pain, which was severely dealt out to me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of His fierce anger. For from on high He sent fire into my bones, it prevailed over them. He has spread a net for my feet, He has turned me back, He has made me desolate, faint all day long. The yoke of my transgression is bound by His hand, they are knit together and they have come upon my neck and He has made my strength fail. The Lord has given me into the hands of those against whom I am not able to stand. The Lord has rejected all my strong men in my midst. He has called an appointed time against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. Jeremiah writes, verse 16, And for these things I weep. My eyes run down with water because far from me is a comforter who restores my soul. My children are desolate because the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there's no one to comfort her. The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that the ones round about him should be his adversaries. 
Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. The Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against His command. Hear now, all peoples, and behold my pain. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, meaning the false gods, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders perished in the city while they sought food to restore their strength themselves. See, O Lord, for I am in distress. My spirit is greatly trembled. My heart is overturned within me, for I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword slays. In the house, it is like death. They have heard that I groan. There's no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my calamity. They are glad that you have done it. Oh, that you would bring the day which you have proclaimed, that they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me for all my transgressions. For my groans are many, And my heart is faint. Sucks the emotion right out of you, doesn't it? Now that was a lot. But what did you see? What does lament sound like? What 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 goes on here? What did you hear? Great despair. Great despair. What's that? Sadness. Mm-hmm. Grief. Grief. Yeah. On, and that may be something that we don't always do, right? What's helpful about this book is it's going to say things in lament and grief that we often are too scared to say. Or perhaps have just totally escaped us, or maybe we're having trouble accepting it or believing it. Okay, so on that point, so that's good, Becca. So what, what what did you hear that was honest about the circumstances surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem? What did you hear? Regret. Regret. You ever do that? You ever grieving, mourning, sorrowful, and it, it provokes regret. Why didn't I do this? I should have done that. Why didn't I make that phone call? Why didn't I go see that person one more time? Why didn't I share the gospel one more time, right? Regret gets forced to the surface. Very good. What else do you see that, that is honest conversation here? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And it, it comes right at the climax of that first stanza in chapter 1. It's like, God's done this. You know, one of the things that challenges a lot of Christians, even well-taught Christians, is to look at calamity and say, this is ultimately the work of God. Now, a a footnote, because that's a little bit theologically tricky, right? What what, what the passage is saying here is that this was God's plan. This was his doing in terms of what he believed was ultimately best for the Israelites. But at the same time, we're going to see here, and the Bible affirms this, that doesn't make God morally responsible for violence, 
or sin or evil or wickedness, um, things that dishonor the Word of God, right? So God can be overall and in control and sovereign, but not in a way that makes Him morally culpable for the evil things that people do that are under that plan. Does that make sense? And that's hard for a lot of Christians to accept. I mean, a, a lot of Christians will just say, well, you know, God wasn't in that. Or that horrible thing that happened there, God, that wasn't God's will. That, 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 not, not God wasn't in that. And, and we can sympathize with that, right? Because we know that a lot of things that happen in the world are things that God says he hates and is against. Yeah, well, yeah it does have something to do with, with our responsibility, our free will. But, but think about this. Do you want to live in a world where God is only mostly in control of things? You know, I mean, some people struggle with God being sovereign overall, and I get that. I, I think we all wrestle with that at one level. But what's the alternative? The alternative is, is you, you have a God who only has one hand on the steering wheel of the universe. And he's a distracted driver, apparently, sometimes. Because things happen that are beyond it. So... So even though it's hard to see God's good and wise hand in affliction, that's one of the things this book is going to challenge us to see. That even in things that are unspeakably horrible and wicked and painful, in a way that you and I can't understand, God is able to use that and to redeem that and to create something beautiful and honoring to him out of something that is absolutely horrible in itself. And that's a test of faith, isn't it? So you see, going back to Becca's point, you, you see the, the author being honest. You know, Nobody in this book says, oh, the Babylonians did it. Go back to the book of Job. Nobody in Job says the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans you know, did all this. The, the theme of Lamentations, like the rest of the Bible, is always, this is God's work. And to trust his hand, even when you don't understand, is part of the, the challenge here. So, uh, Roger, you had your hand up. Well, no, to follow that, yeah. the uh, recognition that God has done this, and also looking back to this is what we have, yeah. the realization that God provided this, and yes. now yeah, you, hear, uh, you probably didn't hear him. That what Roger said is, you know, the part where they're looking back, remembering, brings a, a perspective that, you know, look at how blessed we were. Look, look at what God gave us and how gracious He was, and now He's taking that away. And, you know, this is a painful lesson, guys. But one of the ways God, um, one of the ways that God helps us to see and appreciate grace more is by removing it at times. Is that right? That's what Job said, right? You gave and you took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How can he say that? He can only say that if he looks at his ten children as a gift of grace. God gave for a season and then he chose to take them away. So that, that's, that's really insightful. Um, and uh, and that, I think that's why regret and remembering are a part of lament, especially if we're lamenting over something that we've done. Like we've, we've, we're responsible for something that's wrong and now we're reaping the consequences. Okay? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Is that 14? Yeah. Look at verse 14 because uh, th- there's some poetry here. And, and if you slept through poetry and failed it like I did in school, sometimes it's, it's a little hard here. But, but yeah, the picture here is so helpful. He uses uh, the analogy of, of yoking oxen together, which would have been you know, commonplace in that day. So the, the idea is... God takes our sins, our transgressions, not ours, but I mean the sins of the Israelites, and he builds a yoke with them. And then he puts them around the neck of the people in order to take them into captivity. You see that? It's a poetic way of saying, this is your doing. This is something that you're responsible for. Now, now, again, a footnote, what, what do we tend to do when, when bad things happen to us as a result of our own foolishness? What do we tend to do? Blame other people, blame circumstances, right? But, but that, that's what God is saying is we, we have to swallow the painful reality that um, our sin brings really bad consequences at times. Now, what's neat about this is, well, and, and we're going to see it here, is that even though God in a sense, gives them what they want. You know, they, they wanted to worship other gods. They didn't want to honor him. God says, okay, I'll give you 70 years of that. Um, but always what? What's always at the end of God's discipline? God's restoration. And we're going to see the hope in all of this. And, and that's a good thing to remember. That even in the midst of grief, especially if we're grieving over our own sin, our sin is never greater than the grace of God, is it? In fact, we sing about that. Grace that is greater than all our... Okay, that was your hymn reference. I'll try it again. Grace that is greater than all our... There you go. Okay, you know the hymn. Okay. All right, what else do you see here? You guys are doing great. What do you see, Tara? Yeah, and that, yeah, so God's kindness to sort of remove that veil through the discipline so they can see that. Yeah, that's a good thing to remember, guys, that when we're experiencing the consequences of our own foolish and sinful choices, a good question to ask yourself as part of what God would want us to learn is this. How was I deceived in what I just did? Because we know that, that, as Tara's reminded us, deception is always a part of our sinful behavior. And that's why the Bible's always saying, you know, think on what's true, renew your mind, right? right? You know, pay attention to the truth, be in your Bible. Because it's the truth of the Word of God that allows us to see past the deception of our fallen temptations. And, and often, I mean, you guys feel like this? Sometimes it takes, okay, I did it, and now I'm experiencing a horrible con, uh, consequence. It takes that for me to go, oh, I didn't see that at the time. 
And, and that's why, especially if I can plead to our, our teenagers, our young people here, um, don't look at the consequences that you sometimes experience as something to get rid of and run from as fast as you can. That's all of our tendency. But those consequences are redemptive if you'll look for what God is trying to teach you through it. To see the deception of your own heart early when you're young so that you don't make all the same mistakes that we old people made when we were your age. Um, that's wisdom, guys. That, that, wisdom is seeing how your own heart is prone to deception especially in a consequence like that, and learning from it and saying, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to fall for that again. I'm not, I'm not going to fall into that trap one more time. So, so young people, please uh, don't run from consequences. Don't blame other people for consequences. Learn the clarity of the truth that you didn't see at first. And then don't make that same mistake again. Okay? And again, we, we old people wish we had been that smart when we were your age. Okay, what else do you see here? Yes, Ruth. What stood out to me is kind of an overall impression. Yeah. Here Jeremiah had all these decades of unprofitable, well, from our human standpoint, yeah. unprofitable ministry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They deserve everything yeah. 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 That's a good point. Um, how do we respond when we've spent hours, days, months, years, decades pouring our life into someone that we love and they just make one more foolish decision? And it is. It is fascinating. It's it's rare that we don't grow apathetic, bitter, dismissive, uncaring. Right? I mean, that that that's a great point. That that his heart was soft. He says, "For the, for these, where is it? Verse uh, da, da. verse sixteen. For these things, I weep. My eyes run down with water. Right? It, it, it's." He grieves over four decades of stubbornness instead of a less godly response. That's a challenge, isn't it? I, I know you've got family like I do. I know you've got friends like I do. You may have adult children. You may have parents. And these are people you care about. And you've tried and you've tried and you've tried and you've tried and they just don't listen. It's easy to be like, okay, well, that's the way you're going to be. Or, or, or to get jaded or apathetic, right? It, it's, it's so easy to do that. And, and maybe Mr. Jeremiah is a good example uh, to follow, just to keep our heart warm and to, to grieve even when sin is chronic and stubborn. So, Carl? Yeah. And then here in Lamentations, we see humility. Yeah. We see Jeremiah in verse mm. 18 
Yeah. You know, and so yeah. it's not like Ruth's saying. It's not yeah. the same. Look what these guys have been doing for yeah. 40 years. He's saying, yeah. Yeah, uh, Carl, if you're, for those of you in the back, Carl's just saying, you know, to see Jeremiah's humility and how he's responding, for example, in verse uh, 18, I have rebelled against the command. Yeah, he's identifying himself with the people. You know, in one sense, he's the prophet, so he's representing the people. But yeah, he's also saying, you know, I have the same sinful heart, right? Um, and I think, too, um, you know, we'll see in chapter 3 how even though Jeremiah has done a lot of things right and he's to be commended, um, that doesn't mean he was unaffected by all of this. It's his city that's burning. It's his family and friends that are affected. It's his livelihood and his well-being. You know, Jeremiah almost lost his life multiple times, uh, including when the Babylonians finally came in. Notice when so, uh, yeah. Yep. He is. Yeah. Yeah. So George is making the observation. He kind of goes from an outside observer in the first few verses to putting himself right in the middle of it there. So that's a good, good uh, observation there. Okay. Um, what else? What do you see? Yeah. Yeah, and that's you know, you know sometimes sometimes God is silent on purpose, and what is going on here is God is saying, okay, you've I've been, you know the prophets have been saying, cry out to me, turn to me, repent, trust me, follow me for decades, and so now God says, okay, it's time for discipline, and so here they come, and all of a sudden, what does everybody do? Oh, God, you know, we need you, right? You remember 9-11? We're going to celebrate the holiday tomorrow. You remember that? And everybody was like, God bless America, and we're praying, and this and that, and, you know, we, right? Did that result in, like, the third great awakening in America? It was short-lived, wasn't it? Because that, that's what people do when life becomes overwhelming, right? They, they, they see their need for God, they cry out, and as soon as the circumstances change, what happens? I'm going to go right back to living the way I want to live. So, um, all right, let's, uh, let's fill some of this in on your outline. You guys have gotten most of these, but just to give you, uh, again, this is not like a verse-by-verse verse outline, but just to make some observations of what lament sounds like. And you guys got this, right? Notice the descriptive language, right? The, the poetry, a lonely city sitting like a widow amongst the nations, right? Forced labor, bitter in, weeping bitterly in the night, tears are on her cheeks, lovers have dispersed, friends have dealt treacherously. That's what you and I sound like when we're grieving. Um, if we can get the words out, which is a whole other conversation. Um, I, I was sitting in the hospital at you know, 11 p.m. last night with the family of my friend, and he's in surgery. It was supposed to be a three-hour surgery. It was over 12-hour surgery. Started at 4 o'clock, he got out at 5 a.m. this morning. And maybe that's 11 hours, but um, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's, um, and what do you do? You talk. You talk. And you talk descriptively about your son. You, you talk about his injuries. You talk about the accident. You talk about care flight. You talk about getting to see him and, and not recognizing him because his face is so bloody and swollen and, that's what you do. You, 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 in grief and sorrow, you get descriptive. 
And we see that here in that language. Notice another theme, expressions of sorrow. Not surprising, right? She weeps bitterly in the night and and her tears are on her cheeks. Uh, She has none to comfort her, right? We have these expressions of sorrow. Look down at verse 8. Jerusalem sinned greatly, therefore she has become an unclean thing. All who honored her despise her. Because they have seen her nakedness. Even she herself groans and turns away. Um, she didn't consider... The, so so there's, there's these expressions of sorrow. And what's interesting, um, we looked at some of the language that even the Bible uses. And just like in our language, the Hebrew language, some of the vocabulary sounds like what we sound like. It, it's a groan. It's a moan. It's a it's a expression of just pain and grief. And so we see expressions of sorrow in, in the midst of that. Very uh, picturesque there, verse 16. Uh, For these things, Jeremiah writes, my eyes run down with water. Far from me is a comforter who restores my soul. My children are desolate because the enemy has prevailed. So, so not only do you see descriptive language, you see expressions of sorrow we also see, you guys pick, uh, touched on this, remembering and regretting. Isn't it interesting? When we're dealing with sorrow and grief, we get reflective. Um, even, even things that are like not like horrible, tragic things. You know, my kids go to college. And I have a moment where I'm sad and I picture sitting on the floor with a four-year-old building Legos and going, those days are over. It's not like, you know, big, heavy, horrible grief. It, it's this, it, it's like miniature grief. It's like, it's miniature sorrow. But that's what ha- we get reflective. We think, we remember. And, and if we feel like we've fallen short in some way, we regret. That's, that's why grief and sorrow and guilt and shame often go together. Because all of us can look back in life and say, there were things I could have done differently. Maybe that might have prevented this, or maybe that might have changed the outcome, or, or maybe just, maybe it's not that, it's just, I, I wish I had made one more phone call, or one more visit, or one more sharing of the gospel. And, but that's what, that's what happens in grief and lament. Notice also a focus on the problem, and you see this throughout the chapter. I've just given you a couple of things to look at here. Verse 3, and this is what happens again in grief. You're like hyper-focused on the one thing. And I'm not saying that's bad or wrong. I'm just saying that's a feature of grief, is that we, we tend to focus. That's why when you're grieving and sorrowful, you'll, you'll look up in a couple of days and you'll realize there's all this stuff I've been neglecting. You know, my bills, my children, my house. My, my job, right? Because you're, you're focused on whatever that critical thing is. Verse 3, uh, Jeremiah reminds us that Judah has gone into exile. That, that's the main issue, right? They, Judah has gone into exile. The Babylonians have come in and destroyed and taken and killed. And then also, you also see a, a focus on the condition of the land and the people. Look down at verse 10. The adversary has stretched out his hand over all her precious things. She has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, the ones whom you commanded that they should not enter. Isn't that interesting? One of the rules for the temple and the sanctuary is what? If you're a Gentile, you don't go in. Jews only. 
right? Because that, that, w- that wasn't like discriminatory. That was God saying, Israel is my people and they're this, and therefore this temple, my covenant I've made with them. Yes, we know Gentiles have a way to connect with that. But that temple reminded the people that it's Israel that is God's special people. So Gentiles weren't allowed to come. So what does God do in the midst of discipline? He not only lets Gentiles into the temple, what does he do? They destroy it. They desecrate it. We're going to find out in the book of Daniel, what else did they do? They took stuff from it. Remember Belshazzar? He's got the feast and they're partying one night. He's got his friends there and he's going to impress his friends. Hey, go get the utensils from the Jewish temple and let's mock their God in drink and food while we extol our gods. And that was, that was the moment that God put his hand into the situation, so to speak, right? Can you imagine that? So there's a focus on the problem. And, and, and again, some of this is obvious, but we need to know this because one of the things that happens in grief and sorrow that, that, that might be godly grief and sorrow is it can lead to ungodly behavior when it distracts us from other things that God has called us to steward. So we got to be careful to not let grief um, make us irresponsible in those other things. Okay, and that we'll talk more about that later on, but we're just making observations at this point. Yeah, we, you mentioned this, guys. Verse 15, this is God's work, right? Verse 15, the Lord has rejected all my strong men. God has done this, right? This is God's doing. This is His work. Again, the people should not be surprised by that because literally for over four decades, not just in Jeremiah's ministry, but even before that with the other prophets, God was saying this is going to happen if things don't change. Remember the prophecy we saw way back in the book of Joshua where uh, God tells the people through Joshua, this is going to happen one day because the people are going to drift into stubborn rebellion. And again, we'll talk more about this later on, but, but just to... One of, the, one of the ways that we um, respond in godliness, even in sorrow and loss and grief and pain is we need to look for ways to invite God into our grief. That may be just turning to God in expressions of grief, as we see here. That's one way of doing it. But looking to see God's hand in the midst of it. We we push ourselves further away when we're unwilling to see God in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our sorrow. Even if we don't understand it, even if we don't get it, the eyes of faith say, Lord, even though I don't understand, I know you're here somewhere. Help me to find you. Help me to see what you're doing. Help me to remember your promises in that. And then along with that, we, we see this, right? These crying out to God moments. Did, did you catch it? Verse 9, see, O Lord, my affliction. Verse 18, um, the Lord is righteous. I have rebelled here now. All my people, right? He cries out to God there. Uh, we see it again in verse 11. See, O Lord, and look, for I am despised. Uh, verse 20. See, O Lord, for I am in distress. So, so again, Jeremiah is demonstrating for us the, the need to turn to God and to cry out to God. And um, we've talked about this too. Um, 
Jeremiah is not feeling obligated to run his emotions through a filter before he goes and talks to his heavenly father. And like a small child that falls, injures himself, herself, like a small child that his toy was stolen, you know, other three-year-old crises, that child doesn't go and say, Mother, I, I need to speak with you. I have an incident I'd like to discuss, right? That's not how it works. It's mom, right? And, and tears and, and sorrow and emotion. And no mom says, well, you need to calm down first. You know, you need to speak to your mother in a more proper... T- yeah, no, what do we do? We, we embrace the child, we comfort, we encourage, we help them to calm down, and then we have a conversation. Um, and, and that we see that illustrated here that Crying out to God is something that we need to... You know, a lot of people are afraid to talk to God like that. And, and one of the things that we see in the book of Lamentations is it's okay to talk to God like that. Um, and then seeing God's purpose, right? We, we, we've seen this here. Verse 5, her adversaries have become her masters. Why? The Lord has caused her grief because of the multitude of her transgressions. And Jeremiah says it again. Uh, the, I have rebelled, verse 18. Right, This pain has come about because of rebellion and sin. Um, verse 20, for I have been very rebellious. That's why this has happened. Okay, So turning to God, crying out to God, and looking for God's purpose. Again, this may, may not be the first thing you do, but one of the ways we want to respond to grief and sorrow and, and learn to lament is look for God's purpose. Look for his purpose. And even if you don't know for sure, the Bible tells us that God is always doing good things even in our pain. He's always conforming us to Christ. He's always causing us to trust him and lean on him more. He's always magnifying his power and grace so that, as Newton said, we would lean wholly on our beloved. Um, so we, we can, even though we don't know the particulars, we can fall back on these general purposes that God is always accomplishing and know that in time, often, He gives us more detail. Okay? Um, are you reading Lamentations? I, I hope that as you, you know, just are reading through your Bible, uh, try to, I'd love for all of you to just make an effort to read through the book at least a few times. I'm reading one chapter a week would be great. One chapter a day would even be better. But I just, I want you to saturate yourself with this book and uh, that will help us you guys did a great job today making observations so we'll come back next time and uh, and pick it up uh, father thank you that um, even though it, it seems a bit odd to study a funeral um, we, we see Lord so much about ourselves about our pain about your purposes about what you think about sin and idolatry we see that you're a God that cares enough to discipline your people, but one who brings restoration ultimately. We, we see our need to cry out to you. We, we see our need to see your hand in our distress. We see our need to not get so distracted by our pain that we neglect other duties. And Lord, I just pray that um, whatever our heaviness might be today, that we would turn our eyes to you, that we would cry out to you, we would look for your hand uh, and know that you're there. Lord, help us to trust you and your word and and not our feelings 
in, in moments that we are vulnerable to believe lies. And Lord, maybe it's not us. Lord, maybe it's someone else that we're coming alongside in their grief. Lord, use these things to make us the sort of friend that you might use to be an encouragement. Lord, we're grateful for this book. We're thankful for Mr. Jeremiah. Uh, Thankful for what we're learning. Uh, Would you help us to live differently this week in, in light of what you've shown us? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.